0: Voyager, season three. And I love Voyager. Enjoyable. It's remarkable. Lindsay. Elizabeth. We are third season of Voyager. The purpose of all this
1: is to gain knowledge of the universe and the people in it. You
2: too are turning into a Star Trek script.
1: Yes, it is a little bit clucky, but hopefully it will pay off in the long run.
2: Welcome to Voyager, a theological journey, and it's great to have everyone with us today.
1: Well, today we're looking at uh, the episode, Remember Me. And uh, rather than read a synopsis, I thought I would read you the plot keywords as listed by IMDb and see if that triggers any remembrance for those of you who might have seen this before. Forbidden love. Alien. Dream. Resettlement. Father daughter relationship. Bloody face. Musical instrument. Genocide. Bigotry. Betrayal. Facial burn. Death. Woman wears a uniform. 24th century. Tolling bell. Well, that cleared it up, didn't
0: it? Well, I wasn't sure, Lindsay, whether you were reading the from the synopsis uh, keywords or from the newspaper headlines from the last week. Um, there's certainly um, a lot in this episode that's very topical for us at the moment in terms of, um, um, uh, I guess, uh, the use of power to, um, to affect um, one cultural group over another um and um and and certainly we get to see the very human side of that so often when we hear stories of um of of the rise of nazism in germany and other places that we get a historical overview but but we forget that there were fathers and daughters and and, and lovers and 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 a whole range of different people caught up in the midst of um uh, these things and and that the truth um um becomes uh, I guess, uh, a harder thing to understand in the midst of all of that. Um, we also get that mixed up nicely with a with a, a good little dream sequence and a bit of uh, um, empathy and other bits and pieces that are uh, coming out in um, in this episode as well.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're quite right, Will, that it, it certainly raised for me a lot of thoughts about our current context and in particular the uh, Russian uh, invasion of the Ukraine. And And the ways in which we do only get one sort of story about this. And, um, you know, it was interesting the other day I was reading an article on the ABC with a person who had gone into the sort of separatist areas of Ukraine and interviewed people from those regions about what they uh, saw was happening. And it was quite a, a different perspective than the perspective we hear from uh, the Ukrainian president on media or that we hear in general from the media. So I, I thought this episode did a really good job of, of um, trying to show how, how the truth gets manipulated by both sides in situations like this and, and sometimes how difficult it is to, to call out what's happening um, and how really terrible things can can get papered over in, in the midst of history.
2: I'm not sure I agree that the truth was being manipulated by both sides in this particular episode simply because you have a very disempowered one side and I he was trying to put what he saw that and say the rumours that he'd heard rumours that they were actually being exterminated and not being resettled and there'd been no contact etc and that was his truth i don't know he was trying to put that out as a piece of propaganda so i think the power imbalance in this episode is totally lopsided one side is in government with all the power the other side really is at their mercy
0: yeah yeah and and what's really fascinating about the way they've done this is that Whilst we've got this kind of dream sequence backstory that's happening um between uh, uh Jareth and and um Corinne, um we we've actually also got this current story. So we're we're jumping forward a lifetime. Um and and it's at the end of, of uh Jorah Morel's life, who was Corinne in a younger age, um and and um and she's now Trying to come to terms with the truth that she chose, um, as a younger person that now no longer seems to fit, um, in with with um, I guess the 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 narrative that she feels is is just or or true.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting way that the story is told. And um, before we were um uh, on air, we were having the conversation about how interesting it is that this story entirely leans into the interpersonal story that we have around Balana and the Dreams and the uh, Anarans. There's no B-plot, there's no sort of the ship in danger thing going on at the same time. And I think think that that's part of the reason why this is is so good, that they actually lean into telling this personal story and they're able to do it uh, using all the time in quite a good way.
2: And all credit to the actor who plays B'lana. Um, I thought she was fabulous. She did it really, really well. And that really helped that plot along and helped that story and made it as credible and as real and believable as I feel it was.
0: Yeah, Roxana Dawson really shines in this episode um, as she she's really playing um, two very different roles but as the same person. Um, and you can see that that she's, she's actually... Also being the investigator, trying to work out what was going on, I was fascinated. The second watch through this time preparing, I noticed that the Jora Morell character, um, it's very subtle. But when she comes to join the group while well, they're having a conversation just before Harry Kim and uh, I forget the name of the other engineer from the Anarans who was I there. I think it's Jessen. Jessen, that's right. Um, they go off to have their 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 lovely um. Uh, um, meal together, which, by the way, contained my quote of the week um, from from Roxana Dawson. You know, well, yeah, f- uh, you know, that's fine. You know, go like she she kind of says, "You go ahead without me," and then says, "Oh, well, thanks for not arguing," kind of thing. It was <laughs> um, uh, you, you took that up very quickly. Um, but as as Dora Morell, the older older Anaran comes up, you can see that she has a scar across the side of her face. Um, mm-hmm. And and um, and I, and I noticed, hadn't noticed it the first couple of times. I went, oh, that's interesting. Um, and it's at that point in the dream later on oh. where Balana receives the scar in the story that she puts it together. And I'd always wondered how she'd put it together that it was Jorah Morrell, yeah. but it was the scar on the face that suddenly made her realize that's who I need to go and talk to. That's who's doing this. Oh.
2: I hadn't picked that up, so that's very helpful, Will. Thank you for that.
0: It was very subtle, almost too subtle. Um, but I, I, I do like it when Star Trek is subtle because they don't do that very often. So
2: No, it's usually right in your face.
1: <laughs> no, no, that, that was very good. Um I, I have to ask a question though. Like, did anyone, whether it's anyone here or anyone on the crew of Voyager surely, did anyone not know? That Bellana was going to take the suppressor off. I mean, like you know, you knew that was going to happen.
2: <laughs> Absolutely, it was going to happen. I mean, the plot would not have actually advanced if she doesn't take the suppressor off. You know, she's well, going
1: to. And her character, like I mean, yeah. just knowing Bellana, you know, I would have I would have locked her up if I really thought that uh, you know uh, she needed to keep the suppressor on because surely the doctor or the the uh, Captain should have known that
0: is going to pull this thing off first chance she gets. Well, would anyone, even the captain, you know, like, I, I, i if it were me and I had that on and I'm going, I'm halfway through a story, I'm just going to go, oh no, that's fine. I just, I won't remember. I, I'll, I'll stop being curious about. It. Like, I, I, I find it um unthinkable that that the people will walk out of a story like, and I know people do, but I, and I've seen people walk out of movies and things, and I kind of go, well. No, I once I've started on a narrative, I really feel that I, I have to finish it and, and you can really see that Belana was, um, was was caught in that, that need to finish the narrative.
2: Yes, and, oh, well, it's a plot mechanism too, but I agree. Balana's character demanded that we were going to see the end of this story mm. and that she was going to have some kind of spit about it, I think.
1: I mean, that's an interesting point, Will, because I occasion I don't know that I've ever walked out of a movie I've paid for, but I certainly do sometimes walk out on a TV show, you know, if it's one that Suzanne started and, and I start watching it and then I, think, oh, I can't put up with this. But what I do find often is that there's enough curiosity in me that I'll look it up on Wikipedia just to read the end of the plot. Yeah. But uh, it's not grabbing me enough in its telling of the story that I want to be bothered actually watching them tell it the way they want to tell it.
2: I agree, Lindsay. I've I've done that a few times. (laughs) I'll go look up and see what's happened. But um, I will walk out of stuff, not just because I'm bored or it hasn't grabbed me, but if it's got excessive violence in it, I just won't watch it. Mm,
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And certainly Ibalana could have Googled Anarian genocide and seen what came up um, on the the system.
2: I would imagine nothing, given that the Anarians, in effect, seems to have um, inculcated the younger generation with their piece of propaganda about what happened. And the older ones are either in such denial that they can't recall it anymore or they've really talked themselves into believing that the myth is true.
1: Well, I, I don't know that Google's uh, reach is quite galactic yet. I mean, perhaps <laughs> Discovery with their sphere data could look it up, but uh, I'm I'm not sure that the uh, Federation's computers would necessarily
0: have the Inarrant history. That's quite possible, yeah, especially that far away from Federation space. Um, That's right. Yep.
2: And especially one that they've been very careful to paper over. I should think, even if you were in an RN, it's going to be very difficult to actually get at what actually happened.
0: Yep.
1: And and it is interesting. Like, one of the things that I appreciated about the way this story is told here is that that um, uh, bigotry and the element of uh, genocide creeps in. Like, at the start, it's it's quite easy to interpret it as simply a, a father who thinks that, you know, the the daughter's choice of a... A, of a, a partner is, you know, someone who's not up to snuff or, you know, doesn't have good prospects or whatever it might be. It's, it's only as the story gradually unfolds that you see that there's this um, uh, racial or cultural uh, element to, to what's going on.
2: Yes, yeah, I think that was actually one of the really good things about how the story was told. Because like you, Lindsay, that's how I felt it was introduced. This is a concerned father or overly concerned father for his little girl and who she's seeing and is it going to be someone that should be partnered with her for life? It doesn't take a more sinister turn till quite deep into the narrative. Yeah. And I think that was, that's quite clever, actually.
0: And it becomes quite a racial thing as, as he begins to question their hygiene practices and their ability to manage themselves as a civilized society. Um, many of the statements that were that were made in the episode were, were actually um, things that were said about the Jewish population in in the, the, the time of Nazi Germany and and by other empires and civilizations over history. Um, when we've been wanting to begin the process of othering another group of people to justify our, our uh, incarceration or even worse, ethnic cleansing of that group.
2: And we've seen that in the last hundred years. There's been so many examples of that. In the last 10 years, there's been so many examples of that. And it does disturb me that we actually don't seem to get involved with it. I mean, at the moment, is it because Ukraine's European? I don't know. There's a lot more involvement from Western nations and sanctions and um, other things they're doing to um, punish Putin for his um, his acts at the moment. But, you know, when it's Burma um, or uh, Myanmar actually, you know, doing what really is ethnic cleansing with their marginalised peoples there, what are we doing about it? We've been training their army, for goodness sake. I mean, shouldn't the very least be that we say to them, listen, if you're going to use your army to exterminate people, we're not giving you weapons and we're not training with you anymore. Um, yeah, it's... Ge- people, we said never again after the Holocaust, but the reality is there's been lots of agains. They're just not on the same massive scale.
0: And I think othering becomes a lot easier to propagate or promulgate when when the other is significantly different um, and I think that's that's part of what we're seeing in this situation is that it's actually we get drawn in when we see uh, a building that looks like my building being destroyed um, when when we see um, uh, streets that that or people going to work or people wearing fashion that might be the same as what ours is we we actually find that. a a level of empathy or sympathy actually grows whereas when we we're talking about a a culture that is completely different to ours um we can we can accidentally um or or maybe even intentionally allow ourselves to slide into to to a, a form of othering that that reduces our empathy in that situation um yeah it's sad. Um, it's terrible.
2: <laughs> it is terrible. I mean, I've been as deeply disturbed by what's happened in Myanmar and what's happened with marginal people in other parts of Asia, I think, as I am about Ukraine. I mean, those boatloads of people, um, I can't think of their name. They're from uh, Myanmar, um, the marginalised group up there. Rohingya? The Rohingya. There was boatloads of Rohingya. With nowhere to go. They are a stateless people and our government wouldn't let them in. That gave me sleepless nights. That just haunted me.
0: And the Tamils from Sri Lanka as well.
2: That's right. I mean, you look at that family from Billa Wheeler and they've said they haven't got refugee status. The woman in that family actually saw her fiance and two others burnt to death by the Tamil, uh, not the Tamil, the um, Sri Lankan authorities. Is that not a case for refugee status? What is our government saying by saying this woman doesn't need a refuge?
0: And I think that's why this episode gives us such a great avenue into having this conversation, Um, and it's part of the reason why we do this podcast is to actually say, um, uh, you know, that, we need to be examining ourselves, having a good hard look at, at ourselves and why certain things make us feel certain ways and why they, why other things don't. It it does require effort and discipline um, to restrict ourselves from um, being engaged in other, othering. Um, and, um, and, and I, and I think, one when you've practiced it, you kind of get used to to seeing people as people everywhere. But but certainly, I know that I'm I'm around people often who are actually um, completely um, blind to their unconscious bias um, that that occurs.
1: I think too that the other um, thing that this episode raises, and and it's right there in the conversation between Janeway and Balana is is when is it. Appropriate or not appropriate to get involved in uh, the suffering of others or injustices we see, and and you know, Janeway makes the comment: "We simply have no right to get involved." Um, uh, and uh, you know, it's that that question: Then, what gives the right, or is right even the the correct framing? What what gives us? Um, when should we respond to suffering or injustice that we see, particularly when it's in a, uh, a, another nation or a, another race or, you know, another uh, setting in Star Trek or whatever? Um, when, when do we hop in and when do we say, hey, that's not a good thing for us to do?
2: That's a really good question. And I guess I'm, I'm thinking of the words of Jesus about some things who said, do to others as you would like think to happen to you. Do I want to be a stateless person floating around on a boat with nowhere to take me in and starving and watching my children starve? No. No, I don't. That is not an experience I want. So looking at Jesus' words, I feel that I should be trying to do whatever's in my power for people who are in that situation. So they do have somewhere to go. My problem isn't so much as when to interfere because I think if we follow what Jesus said in that dictum and other things he says like love neighbour, you know, there's clear um, places we ought to interfere. I guess the question is how we interfere rather than whether we interfere. But for me, it's the powerlessness and helplessness. You know, the Rohingya people in those boats might have kept me awake at night and I write to my MPs and I write to the government and tell them I think they're behaving in a really poor manner by not exercising this humanitarian aid that we should be exercising. And I have no other power. I can't actually change it. I can't drop bread on them. I can't do anything. And to me, it's that feeling of absolute powerlessness that becomes quite crushing.
1: One of the things that that I struggle with, though, is is if if I, as the you know person walking along the road to Jericho, come across someone who's beaten up, it's very easy to apply Jesus' dictum and think, "What would I want if I was in this situation?" and to act accordingly. That. The issues when we come to geopolitical things are so much more difficult to disentangle. Like, you know, uh, you you say to yourself, well, why can't Ukraine just give up the two, you know, areas where people want to be Russian? But, of course, the reality is that not all the people in those areas want to be Russian. It's it's like Northern Ireland. You know, you've got... um, I don't know whether it's a majority or a significant minority, but you've got some people who want one thing and some people who want another. And, and there's no easy way to say, well, here's the right answer. Uh, and and then, you know, if you've got a government that's saying, well, no, we're not going to give up our, our parts of our territory. That's the integrity of our country and whatever. Well, then how do you change their mind without, um, you know, force of arms? And it, it just becomes so difficult to disentangle these these historic and and cultural enmeshments where people seem to want totally disparate things.
2: I think that's true, but I also think that Mr. Putin has way overstepped the mark by invading the whole of Ukraine and throwing the whole might of Russia at this little, oh, well, it's not really that little, at this sovereign state. He has no right to tell them who they can and can't join and trade with. He has no right to invade that entire country, to target civilians, cut off their power so they're freezing, and do all sorts of things like that. He just doesn't have that right.
1: Oh, I I agree entirely, Elizabeth, but I guess the question is, how do we respond? And, like, if we start, you know, bombing Russians or, or stuff like that, is that actually the kind of response that's going to lead to wholeness and wellness for the greater number of people?
2: That's a really good question. And I think the sanctions are really biting with Russia. I, I thought they were all a bit for show, but clearly they're really making him angry and it's really having an impact by the way he's responding. And I really feel for the Russian troops. A lot of them are newly recruited because, of course, in Russia, you spend time in the army when you come of age. They're actually in their late teens and early 20s. They were told they were on a special exercise. They were told they would be greeted with open arms by the Russian-speaking Ukrainians who were looking for them to liberate them. That is not what they found. Even among Russian-speaking Ukrainians, they all lined up at the border and said, go home, and that is not what they expected. In Russia, the two independent media outlets that are not state controlled have been shut down because using the word invasion and war is forbidden in Russia at the moment. So the only media the Russian people are hearing are the state media. So it's a complicated situation and throwing bricks at Russian people and even at that army is not the answer, I I believe, because I think those young men have been lured into something that really isn't what they expected
0: absolutely and and i mean i guess that's um that's that's the times that we're we're living in now where we we have these really difficult and complicated um scenarios to work through um i want to um shift us i think um to to somewhere else at the moment i was really um impressed with the acting of Tim Russ during this episode. Um, he didn't have many lines as Tuvok um, but um, uh, his discomfort throughout the whole episode was really, really evident um, that his whole body language and I love it when actors are actually able to communicate their discomfort by by, by not having to necessarily make a statement. Uh, as, as I said before there's a subtlety throughout this episode that I, I think actually really lifts it from um, from other other Star Trek episodes around it. Um, did you catch his discomfort as he was sitting, especially when the, the captain was uh, learning to play that uh, very strange-looking musical instrument? Um...
1: Yeah, I mean, it was interesting, you know, because I, I did notice his discomfort and and I was wondering what's going on because his discomfort didn't seem to match, uh, you know, the, the the thing that was happening, which, you know, seemed to be that the captain was miraculously able to bring beautiful things out of this instrument. And it's only when we, we panned back and saw that this uh, you know uh, telepathy thing was happening that you could understand why Tuvok was un- uncomfortable.
2: I thought Tuvok too, because you've got this Vulcan mind-melding thing, which is a kind of telepathy, I felt that he understood the ramifications of someone invading your mental space um the ethical ramifications and maybe even the physical ones of that a little bit more than what the others did. and I felt that was probably adding to his discomfort because he had that personal knowledge of what that actually meant.
0: yep, absolutely and and um certainly it had a profound effect on the captain who was overwhelmed by the experience and i um, one of my favourite characters in Star Trek is um, uh, the mother of Deanna Troy, Lwaxana Troy, who's also a, a telepath, and and there's this interesting thread that runs through a suspicion of telepathic um, behaviour that that we we as human beings, I think it comes from the idea that that we've got a strong boundary around my own thoughts and my own space and and who I am, and so encountering, um, uh, you know. I, species whose ideology is shaped about the fact that there's fluidity between my mind and your mind um my knowledge my experience my past and yours actually I think it generates some some fear um in in um in in us as people because of the sovereignty of our own um thoughts
2: yeah I think that's right because you tend to think what goes on your head is your business and nobody else's and Often it's a relief that no one can actually hear your thoughts because you might be thinking things that should never be uttered in um you know out in public. And I think that is a good thing, and I think the good God who created us managed our minds in such a way that we are like that. So the concept of someone being able to invade that space and actually get a glimpse perhaps of what I might be feeling or that I am stuck with what they're feeling is not a comfortable feeling.
1: It is interesting because I think in, in science, uh, science fiction uh, uh, telepathy in terms of its effect on society has been explored in in both the utopian and the dystopian ways and the, and the, the dystopian take is exactly what you're saying uh, Elizabeth that it, it makes getting on in society so much harder because people can see you know your underlying uh, dislike of them or whatever it might be and and, and it takes away that prop that we have of, well, I might think badly of you, but I can still act civil and just move away and you know, we'll get on. Um, uh, but the, the, the utopian sort of trope is the idea that in a telepathic society, there is peace and harmony, because there is no ability to lie to one another, there's no ability to deceive and uh, to, to create uh, systems of deception. Uh, and, and so actually, uh, with that transparency comes uh, uh, harmony and an ability to get on. So it's it's fascinating that this one uh, sort of idea of telepathy can be taken either, either way towards a dystopian or a utopian outcome.
2: Well, I guess most scenarios are possible depending on how people deal with it.
0: So, bringing it into a theological perspective, there are a range of theologies about a God who actually knows our innermost thoughts. Um, there are interpretations and misinterpretations of poetry in the Old Testament and understandings of of the way that God relates to us. That, that, uh, can we can if 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 we, um, seeking a relationship with a God who knows. Everything that we'll think or say, and especially when we come into those sayings of Jesus around uh, anger and lust um, and 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 what happens within our heart or inside of our mind, um, there's a sense in which there there's there's no res- no safe space or resistance from a from a God who knows everything about us.
2: I'm not buying that theology. I don't think it biblically, it's actually well supported. And I'm like Peter go away if you're going to bring the eye of God on me and look at everything I'm thinking and doing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I've just been uh, watching an online um, uh, course um, by uh, Thomas J. Ord, who's the director of the uh, Centre for Open and Relational Theology, and, and exploring exactly those sorts of concepts of does God know everything going on in our mind? Does God know uh, the future or is the future genuinely open and shaped by the interaction of God and of created uh, beings? And uh, yes, yeah, so it's, it's an interesting um, way that I think, you know, many parts of theology now are trying to explore uh, what the, the biblical record says about God and then how that does or doesn't fit with the sort of uh, traditional classical theist uh, view of God which is I think very um, uh, very much um, uh, shaped by by Greek ideas of uh, of what perfection is and you know the sort of mm. impassable and immutable God that somehow doesn't seem to actually fit with what we read. Uh, about God in in the scriptures,
2: I agree, Lindsay. I think that that's just been superimposed on what we've actually got there. I don't think God is all knowing in most of the scripture. He has to ask Moses what's going on. He has to ask other people what's going on. He has to mediate with prophets and other critters that like the Malachim that descend on ladders and turn up at people's places. Um, so. I would like to think God had better things to do than just checking on what I'm thinking. Um, yeah, that's just my thoughts. Yeah, so it's Sorry, a really... Sorry, lot if you're listening.
0: <laughs> well, it's okay if God's listening. It was about whether or not God knew what you were going to say before you just said it. Um, so. I don't
2: believe God does. Otherwise, we're stuck with a theodicy that is is bad.
0: So we find ourselves, I guess, um, sitting in that same tense discomfort that... that um, Tuvox got going well I know this is this is happening I'm not sure exactly what this is or whether it's a threat or, or not um, but it's uh, yeah the, the whole idea of, um, of of suddenly being able to learn to play a musical instrument because somebody puts their hand behind their back that could save us a lot of time and a lot of money. I mean it's a, it's a, it'd be a great way to transfer information
2: yeah. <laughs> and we might not want it I mean yeah I think everything comes with caveats will
0: <laughs>
1: yeah yeah of course it does uh, I mean I, I um wanted to just uh, raise a, a slightly different thing and this is my quote of the week so um uh, uh, I think uh, I think this was actually Balana in the person of the of the younger girl um uh, and talking to her her boyfriend. Um, in, in the corridors or whatever uh, and she says nothing is impossible if you want it badly enough and, and I thought that was an interesting quote that, that I'd love to hear your perspectives on because I think it, it's something that we say and it's something that I think we recognize that there is some kernel of truth there and yet clearly it, it's totally not true um, you know, that, that uh, there are lots of things that I might want badly for myself or, you know, for world peace and, you know, the Ukraine to, to have a just outcome and whatever. And, and me wanting it is not necessarily going to cause it to happen. And yet we continue to repeat that kind of saying because I think there is something there.
2: I think you're, you're right, Lindsay. It's true and not true. I think it's mostly not true. I think it's a saying that suits more privileged and wealthier people in the Western world um, where it's easier to do things like amass money or to have a career or get a degree or be educated or et cetera, et cetera, um, and do those things. You know, if I'm a poor sub-Saharan African living on less than $2 a day, I'm probably not going to be end up being a, a jet pilot for instance, even if I really want it, simply because circumstances and fortune are such that that would be an almost impossible dream for me to realise unless some rich person patronises me and sends me to university and does a lot of things for me um, to make that possible. We live in a world that is incredibly unbalanced and unjust in terms of where wealth is distributed and opportunity is distributed. And a lot of our world, are, you know, they're not just a few meters behind the starting line of life. There, you know, they're a week behind it.
0: But we love those stories—the the stories where people change their stars, where they're they they actually, you know, half of Hollywood has created movies about the these movements. And um, as you were talking, I was thinking about the, um, the Australian um, movie Lion, um, where the young Indian um boy falls asleep on the wrong train and ends up in Hobart, Um, you know, like there's this, this really interesting kind of, and even for him, it's not enough just to have, have gotten everything he might've ever wished for, but he now has to go, go, go back and find out who he, who he really is. Um, And, and so, you know, we, I, I think, I think we're designed to hope um, and to strive beyond our capacity to, to try and push beyond our reach um, but to actually make a statement that says, "Well, we can all do it," um, I think denies the reality of of the injustices that exist in the world.
2: It absolutely does, and to and it's like the it's like the saying too: "God doesn't send you anything that you can't oh, God. hold or manage." You know, that's a nonsense statement. I'm sorry. This idea that God's sitting up there thinking of these tests to make you utterly miserable um, because he thinks you can handle it is just I'm sorry, ridiculous. Even if we do have Jesus being tested in the desert, you know, I don't think God is going around testing us all.
1: So are you saying that if I, if I send my intentions to be a millionaire out into the universe, it's not going to happen?
0: Probably not. Oh. But you should still send them.
2: <laughs> Just in case. <laughs> yeah, you should still send That's
0: And I think that's the paradox here is, is, is that we, we don't have a right to expect but we certainly have 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 a, 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 I think a need to 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 hope, um, to to, um, to 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 desire I think, uh, and and I think for a long time the church has made desire um, a sin, um, but I, I actually think ambition is is not in the sin category, um, as long as we're not hurting anyone else. Like it's I think it's quite okay to say I'm going to set myself a goal and I want to try and achieve it. Uh, and maybe I'll even set myself an impossible goal and try and achieve it, um, because then we get to find out what is and isn't possible. Yeah.
2: I as long think as you don't that, crash and burn.
1: Part of it's actually just, you know, saying uh, your attitude to things makes a difference to the outcome. But somehow that's not quite as catchy as saying
0: yeah, but that's like saying you know, um, sugar in a cake makes a difference to how sweet the cake is, but you still need the whole of the rest of the cake. I mean, you you got to It's only, I think our attitude, our hopefulness, is only one aspect of what makes things come into reality. Yeah, no, no, I'm
1: I'm taking this by the. I'm just gonna lie in bed every day now, just thinking hopefully about how I'm going to be successful and become the Pope of the world and stuff. Uh, and, 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 you know, surely surely that will be enough. Can you, can
0: you aim a little higher, Lindsay, than that? But why, or
2: not, maybe, why not world dictator? Why stop at Pope?
0: Maybe, maybe oh. realistically one of my ambitions, Robert Picardo, if you're out there listening and you'd like to be on the podcast, um, then uh, get in contact with me. Um, on neveroddoreven.me uh, at gmail.com. Um, Robert, um, the doctor, if you'd like to be on our podcast with us, we would that's one of our ambitions. We'd love to have you here. I'm a doctor, not a performer. I don't have time for such nonsense.
2: It's probably one of the more achievable ones. I'm not saying it's, it's a definite, but it's got possibilities. But if we said, you know, we're going to invite the archangel Gabriel and interview him, I think that would be a harder thing to achieve.
1: Yes, especially if you don't believe in archangels.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I find it interesting, Lindsay, that you believe in all sorts of strange scientific sci-fi type concepts (laughs) as being imminently plausible and possible, but you reject the presence of a supernatural being that's in almost every page of our scriptures.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well there you go see' I've, I've, I've got to keep you interested in my inconsistencies but that that's the way
0: it is <laughs> um I, I um, there was something else in this episode that made me feel very uncomfortable um, and if I'm totally wrong about this and you know push back but it made me feel very uncomfortable the relationship between Chakotay and Balana um, and and so Balana is, is is for starters Balana sleeps in and when she wakes up, he's standing over her in her room alone, no one else there. And I and I kind of thought, first of all, that's a bit of a, you know, don't do that. You you, you don't do that. Um, and then the conversation they have straight after that just, for me, felt way too familiar for a person who is in command over another person or had power over another person. And, and the expression... That Robert Beltran was putting on his face as Chakotay in those moments just seemed wrong. He seemed to be almost voyeuristically enjoying hearing the stories of her of her encounters in this dream space, and I I I I found that quite confronting. It made me very uncomfortable. Mm.
2: I felt that they were drawing on their past relationship from the marquee where they were clearly quite close, and of course there was that episode back with that creature that was wandering around inhabiting people's imaginations as someone else. And she, in that episode, says she's in love with him. Um, and that indicated to me there must have been a familiarity and understanding between them where they were part of the marquee that we're not picking up in the stuffiness and starchiness of the hierarchy of the Federation. It's kind of been a bit suppressed. I thought this episode, it sort of went back to that.
1: Yeah, I I mean, it's interesting. Uh, The the being in her quarters didn't worry me because he he did say, you know, we we tried the comms and I think uh, it, it it would be an appropriate response if you can't raise someone in their quarters to actually wonder whether they've had some kind of uh, you know medical issue and to go in
0: the um, commander Riker would have brought two security officers with him um, <laughs> absolutely um, so they could have stood behind um, and 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 made sure everything was right so yeah yeah well that might be the
1: the less uh, formality i i agree with you that the conversation did um, uh, did feel uh, funny but I I, I think uh, like Elizabeth that they're trying to portray that this is a this is a relationship that has gone beyond the kind of um, cultural you're a man I'm a woman so we've got to have this sort of uh, you know barrier or whatever to we're good friends and we can you know share this. Um, and, uh, I mean, if, if, if it was a, a fellow and another fellow, um, and they were heterosexual and they were having a conversation about how one of them was having really sexual dreams, we wouldn't, we wouldn't probably think it was odd if one of them, one of them said, well, that sounds pretty good. You know, hope, hope you have another one tonight or whatever. Uh, it's because there is the possibility of sexual tension between them that I think we we feel like, is this appropriate or not? And I think they're going for, they're beyond that, but maybe not successfully.
2: Well, I felt the fact that she was prepared without any hesitation to actually tell him about the dreams and be really open about the nature of them and confide in him says that they've got a relationship beyond a superior and an inferior in the Federation hierarchy. And that there's a real friendship that's been enduring there. That's what it said to me. Had she not done that well, I might have felt more uncomfortable. But the fact that she responds to him as a close friend would respond to an- another close friend and tells him these intimate things um, does suggest to me there's a prior relationship that is um, quite close, but probably um, what is the word I'm looking for? It, it's not a romantic one.
0: Yeah. I think um though that in the in the pastoral relationship and that's what we're looking at here at the moment is a is a is a part a relationship of pastoral care um Chakotay clearly cares about those underneath him and that that's a, a, a probably a, a more familiar kind of care than in, in the Federation although I, I have witnessed uh, Cisco and Riker and others actually doing the same kinds of things that there is a there is a um, a need to be working out for whom information is benefiting um and so so uh, and and look i'm not i'm not i'm not reaching the point where i'm prepared to actually go to janeway's office and and um and ask for there (laughs) to be an inquiry into the behavior of chakotay but i I thought it was a really interesting opportunity to have a look at the idea that that whenever we're engaging in a pastoral relationship we need to be asking ourselves the question um who's being served by this relationship um, and and what and, and I think I think probably what we're looking at here, what I was detecting is that I think that Robert Beltrain missed the mark in terms of his acting, um, because he seemed to almost be excited by the conversation that was actually taking place. Um, and and um, and, I, and I think that 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 for me um, shows a bit of a warning sign that that those in pastoral relationships really need to be be prepared to ask themselves the question. Am I wanting to know this story because um, uh, I want to help, or am I wanting to know this story because it 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 creates curiosity, it generates an engagement for me? So it's an interesting pastoral question.
2: It is a good question, I think we all should be asking ourselves that question. But mm. I thought Robert Beltrain was betraying to me anyway. He was very amused by it, mm. especially since it's Balana. Yeah, I don't actually associate that kind of, you know, interest in romantic pursuits with B'Elanna. Maybe Mm. I'm wrong about that. Um, You two know her character better. But I thought he found it highly amusing that she was having these dreams and getting so much out of it, and that's what I took out of it. Sorry, Lindsay, I think I cut you off.
1: No, no, that's fine. Uh, I I mean, I think Will's um, framing is a really interesting one, and I I, I guess uh, to use that framing, I... I think that what we're being shown and whether that's accurate or not I think that what we're being shown is a relationship which is not a pastoral relationship but a, a friend relationship yeah mm. and 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 as I said whether that's accurate or whether Chakotay is wrong in thinking I can relate to Balana just on a friend level even though I am her superior officer that that's the question and I think. I think that's a really good one for those of us in pastoral ministry because we do make friends. And and sometimes we make friends in congregations uh, where we have, uh, you know, a a pastoral responsibility. And and you have to think clearly about what are my boundaries. And even though I see this person as a friend, I am also their minister. And what does that mean if I uh, relate to them in a certain way or I tell a certain... Uh, joke or whatever. How how are they perceiving that? Mm. And and are they seeing me as a friend or are they seeing me as their minister?
0: I, I'd accept that right up to the point where Chakotay says to Balana, so I won't have to write this up as an official report. Um, and at that point, it suddenly went from this friendship banter to snapping back. And I, you actually see the, the jolt of that in Bellana Torres's face as she suddenly realizes I'm not talking to my friend, I'm talking to my commanding officer and i i I almost felt that that was actually a bit of an unfair movement uh, really well portrayed but uh, but it does it does call I think that question of of yep. of the of of him uh of Chakotay not really thinking through. Um, what the status of their relationship is or being yeah. able to make a clear discernment about maybe when they're on duty and when they're off duty. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah, I no, think I, that's I a thing. That.
1: Yeah. Uh, I think one of the other things that this whole um, are experiencing this... Uh, did for me was that i thought to myself you know the the mating rituals and and even the sexual interactions of different races are all suspiciously similar aren't they
2: yes they are they all all like kissing
1: (laughs) they all you know seem to copulate in a a certain way you know and, and and you could almost be um Forgiven for thinking that uh, that was, you know, due to the uh, audience watching this or, or something like that.
0: <laughs> well, we're all made in the image of God. So, you know, oh, that's the consistency. Oh, that's what it is. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> well, only in one version of the Genesis story. In the <laughs> other version, we have no idea what God looks like. He could look <laughs> like a giant tortoise for all we know.
0: <laughs> but he would still have sex the same way. So, um, yeah. I
2: don't know. God has sex. <laughs>
1: there, there was an Isaac Asimov short story, and I can't remember what it was called now, but I remember reading it as a teen and be really taken by the fact that it portrayed an entirely different way of of having relationships and of reproducing. And you know, it was you know I, I can't remember. There were uh, you had to be in a group of three or four. It wasn't pairs. And then there was some totally different physical way of reproducing. Hmm. And and I loved the the idea that actually. It wasn't just taking humans and pasting funny, funny faces on them, or giving them weird organic hairdos or whatever.
0: Let's not be too hard on Star Trek, though. Remember that Kess's people get sticky hands and actually have to be joined together for a period of several days. Um, that um, that they actually produce some kind of reproductive um, uh, sac on their back where where the the, the fetus gestates. So. So they've, they've experimented a little bit with the ACOMPA, um, but um, I think you're right. I think, I think the predominance of the, the kind of uh, 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 procreation that we're seeing is actually in line with our human existence, which probably speaks to you know, our, our high place in the universe in terms of our, our great uh, level of evolution.
1: It's almost like we're at the centre of the universe. It is, isn't
2: it? That's one thing that's driven me nuts lately is the, you know, putting the human as the pinnacle and as the centre and the human salvation is all that God is interested in. That drives me bonkers when people say that. And it's come up a bit lately and it's just what about the rest of creation which we are systematically destroying? What are we saying? That human-centric view of theology has got to be put in the dustbin of history. But Jesus,
0: Jesus did come to this small blue planet on the western spiral arm of the Milky Way <laughs> uh, in order to actually uh, walk around with us um, and, 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 and be us. That makes us very special, I think.
1: Mm, That's right. If the the cross is the centre of history in the universe, obviously, you know, human beings are.
2: (laughs) Oh, no, it's just a poor way of seeing things and it's leading to such destruction
1: it's interesting that's a, that's a, that's kind of a, a segue to another sort of slightly off the cuff thing I wanted to talk about which is that uh, early on they talk about how they're, they're heading back from one place to a, another planet and they talk about how they have um, used terraforming uh, to to create this second planet as a, a place suitable and it raised for me the ethics of terraforming, which, of course, terraforming is a bit odd for them anyway because Terra is our planet, you know, circ- uh, circling our sun. But, but you know, do we have the right to go and terraform Mars, to make Mars more into the image of Earth so it's it's better able to support us? Uh, or, or is that unfair to Mars uh, and any possible uh, creatures that might be there.
2: I think it is. It's just colonisation. It just happens to be another planet instead of another country. But we're acting like we do. That is what bothers me. We're acting like we do. Again, it's that humans are the centre of the universe and it's not a religious idea on its own. It's what scientists who are exploring Mars, it's what rich billionaires that obviously have nothing better to spend their money on so they make rockets and space shuttles. You know, they think we have a right to be doing this stuff, that it's perfectly reasonable. We have learnt nothing from our history.
1: So, I, I mean, let, let me push you a bit there. So uh, are we saying that humans should never have, um, you know, left, left the uh, fertile part of Africa where they first evolved and that they had no right to, you know, go to any other continent?
2: I didn't, know. that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is they don't have a right to colonise it okay. and take it over and suppress the life forms or people that may be there.
1: And, and if there are no life forms, is it okay then?
2: I suppose it's all right if it's completely empty and you're sure it's completely empty to go there, but you, as long as you're not going to cut it all down, change the courses of its rivers and turn it into a, from a fertile land into a wasteland because that's a form of colonisation too.
1: Well, I don't think that's, that's Mars. I, I think it's rather the reverse for Mars.
2: It probably is. But even so, you know, who knows what the grand plan is for planets or for doing things? Who knows whether we have a right to go and interfere with them? I'm not sure about that at all. And why should we be spending the money on getting Mars up to scratch for us to live in when we could just stop trashing the planet we're on?
0: I am. Um, I, I'm wondering why there isn't a lot more terraforming going on, um, given that it's more than 100 years ago that Dr. Marcus discovered the Genesis wave and made the Genesis torpedo, which allowed them to just fire a missile into a dead planetoid and turn it into a lush green habitable planet. Um, they, they seem to have completely shelved this idea. Um, Strangely um, enough. Maybe because the because the Klingons weaponized it. Um, but uh, um, what a great way to to invade! You know, if you had a, had a had a missile that you could actually fire into the neighbouring country and it would just flatten everything and let get yourself ready to start building new habitats.
2: Well, I think the Never Ending Story would have something to say to that, which is a film I like very much because everything did have its place and everything was part of that whole fabric structure. And when you interrupted it, like um, the new, uh, the emperor, um, the young boy does, he's trying to be compassionate and do the right thing. Those little creatures that cry and produce beautiful silver as they cry, he made them happy. And, of course, that just completely destroys the fabric of their social life and their whole life's work and how they behave and they drive everyone else nuts. And by the end of it, he can see, it takes a while, but he can see that everything did have its place and you might be interfering with the best of intentions, but it actually changes the course of things and not always for the better.
0: So that brings us back to interference and non-interference. Um, Janeway was right to withhold any kind of formal action um, um, and to 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 pull Balana back into place but then at the same time, left the back channel open for her to go and say, oh, by the way, that, you know, you can't talk to anybody, but that engineer is still on board. If you hurry, you might catch her. I was kind of going, you know, uh, we're back to where we started, interference versus non-interference. At what point um, should we and what point should we not?
2: I don't think they can officially interfere because I don't believe they've got any power to do so. What are they going to do? Go down to the planet and say one of our members had these dreams. We believe it was sent by one of your people and this is the truth of your history. Look into it. How's that going to work? It's just not going to work. So I think I don't think she says don't talk to anyone. She says we can't formally do anything and I agree with her. But she says to Belana, if you want to tell your story, there's an engineer still here that you could go and talk to and of course that's what balana does and to me that was the appropriate action for her to take because there is no other action
1: well and i think balana also approached it um, in a much better way saying okay you you don't believe me prove it go and, and check it out and and see if you can disprove what i'm saying you know so yeah. i think that was a much cannier way than than you know, bursting in on them all and saying, I had this dream, I saw this, blah, 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 you're, you're hiding the truth. But coming back to the the, the whole uh, interference, non-interference thing, I, I mean, I think one of the things that you're pointing out there, Elizabeth, with the never-ending story or anything else, is that we are all ultimately and inescapably part of a web of, of, of life and, and things, and we're all linked, and we can't, not interfere unless we all just die or, or you know, are, are turned into crystal and never move again. You know, everything we do has an impact on the whole web of life. Um, and the best that we can do is is try to understand that and act in ways which are not obviously detrimental to other parts of that web. But we're always going to be changing things and affecting things.
2: Oh, I think that's true, and I'm not saying that we should never change or never affect anything, and we are a part of a very complex web of life on this planet, but we should be adopting the Wiccan kind of um, mantra, which is do no harm. And we're doing lots of harm, whether we're doing it through ignorance and will for ignorance or whether we're doing it because we're just selfish entitled prats that think that we're allowed to burn coal till everything is destroyed and we're allowed to cut down a habitat And, you know, 60% of our species will be lost soon. I mean, to me, neither of those things are right. Because if we are part of the web of life, that includes respecting the rest of that web of life. And all of it will impact us. I don't know what impact on us wiping koalas out will have, but there will be one somewhere. And it will have a knock-on effect somewhere at some time because everything is in its place and it is contributing to that whole web of life in positive ways. Nothing is not necessary.
0: At some time in the future when that alien probe comes into Earth's system and actually <laughs> says, where, where where, are all of the humpback whales gone? <laughs> we'll have no choice but to travel back in time and grab some from the 1980s and bring them, bring them back to save humanity. Yeah, that's um, going to work. Uh, it's it's the plot of the uh, the what is Four. it fourth fourth Star Trek movie. Uh, um, but it, it does make that point to say, oh look what what were the humpbacks for anyway? We didn't really need them and then we discovered, oh actually uh, the human race is going to be completely wiped out unless we actually could have a couple of humpback whales in the ocean. Um, it, it does ask that question, which is um, fascinating, yeah.
1: Well, and and the difficult thing is that you know I am I'm, I'm all for the Wiccan slogan about do no harm, but the problem is we we often don't know whether we're doing harm, and you know like uh, we we might have the the purest of intentions. Let's uh, you know try and solve the. The, the problem that the uh, Tasmanian devils are, are having and and strengthen that species. Um, and they then go and, you know, kill some other species that are, are their prey, you know, that, that in this interconnected web, it's almost impossible to know what the knock-on effects of, of anything we do are. and and, uh, and so maybe all we can do is... Uh, you know, stand still on eggshells and, and and not not progress in any direction because we're likely to cause problems.
2: I don't think that's entirely true, Lindsay, because scientists who make a habit of studying this stuff can predict with reasonable confidence the knock-on effects of the certain loss of certain species and habitat, et cetera, et cetera. And we look at climate change where trees, which are evolved much more slowly, can't keep pace with the change in climate and temperature. And that has a knock-on effect to a whole pile of flowering things and insects and pollination and food supplies, etc., etc. So I don't think it's entirely true. We don't know the consequences of our action. And anyone listening out there, if you want to get a grasp of what I'm talking about, there's a little video on YouTube go, ch- called Wolves Change Rivers. So I suggest you Google wolves change rivers and you'll see that an apex predator that apparently has nothing to do with the geography or geology of rivers apparently does. And it's really worth watching that few minutes of that particular video about how everything works together in an ecosystem to somewhat surprising effect. I'm watching David Attenborough's um, Planet Green or whatever it's called on at 7.30 on Friday nights at the moment. And the astonishing interplay and interaction between, you know, plants and the botany of things and how like trees using these enormous interconnected funguses that are underground through their roots to communicate with one another, for instance. So my answer to you, Lindsay, would be is what Balana says to her friend in engineering, go and get informed. Get informed, yep. Ignorance is no excuse.
1: Uh, I, I look, I don't want to watch your video, but I'm I'm glad that you've given it to me <laughs> because I'm now gonna blame wolves
0: for climate change. <laughs> climate change. It's
2: not wolves, and you should watch my video and it's an excellent video, and it's only about six minutes.
0: There I is one sinister it. thread we've missed in all of this, and that is um that uh Jorah Morrell says to Balana Torres as she's dying, they knew I was sharing the story and they killed me. Um Someone killed her to hide this truth. Now, that means that they know, they knew how dangerous the truth would be and how important yep. it was that she couldn't share it. And and for me, that starts to lean towards the place where, I mean, I think Janeway's intervened over less um uh, you know to provide the information to be able to say a murder occurred on 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 my ship while I was transporting these people and we believe it occurred for these reasons so we're reporting this to your authorities um would have been an appropriate way for Jane way to be able to to deal with that situation
1: well and i think Jane way would have done that if if there'd been any proof so she yeah. specifically asked the doctor to investigate and and he was not able to show any proof of foul play. And I think that that was the reason she gave to B'Elanna for why they couldn't interfere. If if the doctor had said, yes, she was poisoned, I I think Jane Woe would have done exactly what you said.
2: I agree, Lindsay. I think it was the complete lack of proof that stayed her hand or her voice on this issue. Because she's an alien speaking into a very long history of propaganda and a truth and a mythology that's been accepted by pretty much everyone. Um and, and just to pop up and say we think they murdered even though there's no evidence for this, which I can't give you evidence for either because somebody dreamed it. Would I believe that as one of the Anarans? Probably not.
0: Yeah. Well, look, it's been an absolutely fascinating episode for us to explore. Let's hope that at some time in the future we don't need the coronavirus to save the future of humanity. Um, as we uh, as we attempt to eradicate it from our existence. Um, but um, yeah, there is that 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 strong. Um, narrative story here that actually gave us, gives us a, a, a really fertile ground for having a wide range of different conversations um, about um, faith, ethics and theology. So that's been wonderful. Um, any final thoughts um, or quotes of the week or, or other bits and pieces?
2: Uh, probably about consent. We haven't actually touched on that because when the dude that's standing behind Janeway touches her to give the knowledge of the instrument, he says we never do things without consent, mm. where it's clear that... Um,
0: well, he just um, did.
2: <laughs> well, he did, and he assumed her consent, mm. which is not the same thing. No. And here we have um, um, Jora Morrell actually without consent giving these dreams to Balana because mm. she feels the truth overrides that normal common courtesy. So I think that's worth pondering about, especially since teaching consent and what consent actually is, is on the agenda with our schools and took the form of milkshakes for a while. I think that's gone into some sort of abyss of history and there it should stay. But, you know, it's a really important thing that we need to understand. What is consent?
0: And I really think that if what you're going to do is extraordinarily intrusive, that what you need is enthusiastic consent. Um, if yes. if if it's if it involves high levels of intimacy, um, or if it's invasive or it's going to, uh, cause pain or harm or, or whatever, there is a there is a, a sense where you can't just assume consent or 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 pull pull an idea that it will be consensual, but actually gain gain enthusiastic consent is the word that I think it's being used and i and I, I find it a really helpful concept that that we need to know uh, and we're not just talking about sex here this this is this this is about a whole range of different yes. ways of engaging with people um, where we have to intrude or cross another person's boundary um, it seems absolutely um essential that we are absolutely sure of the consent of the other person when we're going to to do that
1: and, yep. and it is interesting in this episode that, that as you, you point out, um, uh, Balana does not consent to have these these dreams, these memories shared with her, even though the, the intention is to sort of let the truth out. And and that's in comparison to at the end where Balana makes the approach and, and, and says, I'm willing to share with you. And the other person says, well, I can make the connection and, and, and that, that uh, truth is passed on, uh, but in that case, uh, entirely cons- consensually. Hmm.
2: Yes, and there's a certain irony there that he who says we would never do anything without consent seems to be in full possession of the knowledge of what they did do in their history totally without consent. Yes. And, and she who would tell the truth is pushed to doing it without consent. So without I thought consent. there was a nice paradox operating yeah, there.
0: Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Well, next week's episode we uh, we get a doozy. Um absolutely amazing episode Sacred Ground coming back. Um it'll it'll call into question um what we believe, um what belief is about, um what faith is about uh, and the relationship we might have with our gods. Uh, so um a, an absolutely fantastic episode um and, and Kate Mulgrew takes the center stage in this episode next week Sacred Ground. Um, as the as the primary character. And we haven't seen a lot of a lot of Jane Way as the primary character um for a little while.
1: No, i just and looked at it. It's interesting that um uh you know while while you describe it as a doozy, uh it actually rates relatively low. And and yep. there's probably a discussion to be had there uh, about the way in which uh spiritual themes and religious ideas are portrayed in Star Trek and received by Uh, general Star Trek audiences. Mm.
2: Well, maybe religion isn't something that's high on their entertainment agenda.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. No. It's, unlike, it, us. It, un, unlike us. Unlike us. <laughs>
2: unlike us, exactly.
0: If you're entertained by us and you'd like to support us, then you can go to Patreon, uh, Never Odd or Even Media, and support us there. Uh, you can leave us a comment on uh, Facebook page, Never Odd or Even. Uh, or, as I said earlier, you can send us an email on dot me at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, um, and we'll give you a shout out if you do. Um, that's uh, all we've got time for this week. Uh, I've been Will Nicholas. I'm Lindsay Cullen. And I'm Elizabeth Gray.